All right. If you have your Bibles, grab them. Acts. Uh, we're going to be in the end of chapter four and going into chapter five. Those kind of go together. So that's where we're going to be uh, this morning. And we're going to actually, we're going to read it throughout the sermon instead of at the top. And so we're going to kind of walk through it slowly together. Um, have you ever, you, a lot of parents in here, a lot of dads, have you ever had this moment with your kids where they were about to do something that, you know, they shouldn't do and you, you can either stop them from doing it or you could say to them or to maybe to your wife who's telling you, hey, stop them from doing that. You, can, you, you might say to them, um, they're only going to do it once. You ever done that? Like you, you kid like playing with an outlet and your wife's like, hey, get him out of there. He ain't going to do it again. He ain't going to do it one time, right? Uh, and so I was asking some people uh, about that and if they've had any, any uh, interesting moments with that. And I got a couple interesting ones, you know, like don't, don't pee on that electric fence. Uh, you, you're only going to do it. Oh, they're only going to do it one time. Maybe because they might be dead. I'm not sure. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> this was my favorite one. <laughs> it was some cat poop on the ground. And the kid was picking it up. They only gonna do it once. <laughs> and so sometimes we think that that the consequences of that thing that the kid is about to do is enough to teach them not to do it again. It's the 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 learning is a warning to not do it again. Our text this morning is kind of a fatherly warning to us. It is uh, it's an example for the church as a whole of something that we are going to see happen that God is warning us to say, don't do that again. Don't do that again. So before we jump in, let's pray together. Father, this morning we pray that your word, your inerrant, inspired, infallible, holy word would speak to our hearts and not just our ears that it would challenge us, that it would convict us, that it would push us out of our comfort zone, uh, and, but that it would encourage us and that it would teach us and that it would push us forward. Father, we love you so much. Speak to us this morning. In Christ, and we pray all as people said. <coughs> Sorry about that. When we think about the church, we think about the church in really two ways. We talk about the church gathered which is what we are right now. We're together, we're gathered, and we can talk about the church scattered. So we gather on Sundays to get refreshed, to get encouraged, to get trained, to get renewed, uh, uh, all those things. And then we scatter throughout the week uh, to be on mission and to advance the kingdom of Christ where we work, live, and play wherever we go. And so throughout the book of Acts, most of the time, remember the book of Acts is, this, is the early church being formed and built and kind of coming together. And so most of the time throughout the book of Acts, when we see the church, we see them scattered. We, we, we see individuals scattered, advancing the gospel in different sort of ways. But there are a few moments throughout the book of Acts where we see the church gathered and we get a glimpse of what the inside kind of looks like, what the gathered church in the book of Acts looks like. And this is one of those moments. Our text this morning is one of those moments where the church is together. And it comes with great encouragement at the beginning because the church is, I mean, like rapidly growing. 
In the first four chapters, the church went from 120 people scared up in a room in Jerusalem somewhere to over 8,000 people in the short span of a couple of weeks. And so, and, and three thousand, you know, they get the Peter preaches. He's got to be like the most encouraged preacher ever. He preaches one sermon, three thousand people get saved. He preaches another sermon, like four thousand people get saved. And so, people are just flocking and coming to the church, coming to Christ, growing. Uh, it's growing like nobody's business. And 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 these are not like professional dudes. These are not like the Pharisee, religious, educated guys. These are like fishermen and tax collectors, and these are like blue-collar, uh, just kind of Joe Schmo normal dudes, and they're preaching the gospel, and the church is exploding. And so at the beginning of our text in chapter 4, uh, there's a lot to be encouraged about. So let's look at that. Look at verse 34, chapter 4. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or, house, or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. When you read the things like this in the book of Acts, uh, you see this kind of thing over and over again, like that no one had need. They had all things in common. When you read it, it kind of sounds like socialism, right? Uh, this is what it sounds like when I read it. They all brought their stuff. They all gave it to the apostles, and they just redistributed the wealth as everyone had need. But that's really not what's going on. This is not like some new political structure that's going on. This is the church caring for everyone and anyone who was in need, they made sure the need was filled and covered and taken care of. These were the most generous people on the face of the earth, willing to share their stuff to ensure that every family was taken care of. And no one was like, hey, that's my car, you can't have it. Hey, that's my bed, you can't have it. That's my toothbrush, you can't. No, there's probably limits. They probably didn't share toothbrushes, but they were sharing everything. Write this down. The gospel had loosened their grip on their stuff and tightened their grip on each other. That's really what's happening here. The gospel had loosened their grip on their stuff, and had tightened their grip on each other. And that is what always happens when the gospel transforms our lives. That our grip on our stuff loosens, and our grip on each other tightens. Because isn't uh, that exactly what Jesus has done for us? That though he was in the form of God, did not think it was something to be grasped but he, or clung to, he humbled himself by becoming a servant even to the point of death. Though he was rich, he became poor so that we might become rich in him. When the gospel gets a hold of us, it changes our priorities, particularly that people matter more than our stuff. Think about it this way. When it comes to generosity, uh, are you more like a rock, not the rock, but a rock. Are you more like a rock? Are you more like a sponge or like a honeycomb? Are you like a rock for, for God to get anything out of you? He's got to get a hammer and beat on you and beat on you until finally like some chips come off and that's what he gets. Or are you like a sponge and God can get maybe some more out of you, but he's got to squeeze you to get it out. 
Or are you like a honeycomb where sweetness is just dripping and running and overflowing from you? Which one are you like? You see, when the gospel really gets a hold of us and it wrecks us, it changes our hearts. It takes our hearts from hearts of stone that are hardened and we cling to our stuff and it turns our hearts into honeycombs. It turns us from hard, uncaring to bursting and overflowing with sweetness. When we see the early church, we see a people radically changed by the gospel. We see a people caring more for each other than their stuff. All right, let's keep going. The verses will be up on the screen. It says, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Luke first tells us what's going on inside the church. This great caring for one another. Then, and then he shows us what, what it looks like. He kind of gives us a generic statement. They're, everybody's caring for everybody. And then he shows us an individual and, and, and what that looks like. Barnabas is not just an example. He is the first example that we get of a normal, quote-unquote, person uh, normal, what normal people look like when they've been transformed by the gospel. We've seen a lot of the apostles, right? We've seen the professionals. We've seen the guys who were walking with Jesus for three years, who are all that in a bag of chips. They're the top dogs. We've seen what it looks like for them to follow Jesus. But now we get a glimpse of a guy who's just a normal dude who's come to faith and what he looks like when he follows Jesus, what brand new faith in Christ should look like on mission. So who is Barnabas? Barnabas is the lead giver. This dude goes and he sells off his land and property, and he gives all the money to the church. This dude in Acts chapter 9 later, uh, Paul, when Paul, remember Paul, he's converted, and everyone's kind of nervous about Paul. Like, like, yo, this dude was just killing us. Are we, we, we going to have like a trial phase or something? Like, when everybody's kind of nervous about Paul, Barnabas is the first one to embrace him and stick up for him. In Acts chapter 11, uh, Barnabas leads the church in Antioch to include Gentiles and diversification. Hey, this ain't just for Jews. It's for everybody. Y'all come in. And, and uh, he's put in charge of taking relief money to Jerusalem when they're in famine. He goes with Paul on his first missionary journey, travels the world, sharing the gospel and planting churches. And then there's this guy named John Mark that shows up. And John Mark is traveling with Paul and Barnabas on these missionary journeys. But something happens between Paul and John Mark and uh John Mark, he leaves, he's out, he's going home. And Paul, not happy about it. And Paul like wrote that dude off. But then later, John Mark was like, man, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I want to come back on the mission field with you guys and, and keep going. And Paul was like, uh, no, fool me once, shame on, on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. No, thank you. Uh, you done. And Barnabas is like, man, come on, let's give him another chance. Like grace, Paul, you've been writing all about grace. Let's show some grace. Paul's like, no. And so Barnabas is like, okay, Paul, well, what I'll do is I'll go on a missionary journey with him and I'll make sure he's good and he's not going to flake out on us again and, and, and test him and make sure everything's good. And then later Paul is a, brings him back in after Barnabas does that. Barnabas is a normal dude who's been transformed by the gospel. Barnabas lays down his money and he picks up people. He holds on to his stuff loosely, but holds on to people tightly. Barnabas is not a picture of a superstar Jesus freak. He's not one of those uh, Bible-carrying, crucifix-wearing, honk-if-you-love-Jesus kind of people. You know what I'm talking about? He, he's a picture of what we all should be. 
He's not, the, uh, he's not just different. He is what we should be. We should be like Barnabas. And so everything's going great. The church is growing by leaps and bounds. Everyone's taking care of everyone. People are selling their stuff, giving it to the church. And, in, and chapter 4 ends and chapter 5 begins with a single word that you know everything's about to kind of change and shift. And so, chapter 5 begins with the word, but. So you know things are about to go bad. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. First thing I want you to notice is who is behind this deception? Satan. Realize that this is the first time we have seen Satan and since the crucifixion of Jesus. His first strategy was to destroy God's plan by killing his son, and when that totally backfired on him, he changes his strategy to destroying the church from within. Also notice the word filled. In chapter four, the text told us that the, that the church, everybody was filled with the Holy Spirit. But now we see that Satan is filling those in the church, Ananias and Sapphira, with something that would cause them to lie. Let's keep going. He says, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. What did Ananias and Sapphira do wrong? I mean, like they gave a bunch of money to the church, right? Like what's the problem? Were they not generous enough? Did they have to give all the money like Barnabas did? No, no, they didn't. And, and Peter in that verse makes it clear that they were under no obligation to sell their land, to give any of the money to the church. They weren't obligated to do any of that. They could have sold the land and gave like a quarter or nothing. And if they did choose to give some money, they were under no obligation to give it all. The problem was that Ananias lied. He was pretending to be Barnabas. He was pretending to be like Barnabas. He comes and he says, I sold this field and here's all the money that I made from it. When in fact, he lies and says, this is all the money I made from it, but actually he kept a bunch of it for himself. He didn't have to. He could have said, hey, here's half of the money we made from the field. I want y'all to have it. Here's 10%. Sorry, I need the money for something else. Here's a little bit. And that would have been fine. But instead, he lied in order to make himself look good while also being able to keep some of the money for himself. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Y'all, can you imagine seeing this scene happen? Can you imagine someone coming up to me and being like, hey, pastor, the Lord has blessed me this year. I, the government just keeps sending me money. And I wanted to give it all to the church. But in reality, he only maybe gave half of it. 
And he says, I want to give it all to the church. And then drop dead. <laughs> can I get a deacon over here to get this guy up? Can I get, can y'all bury this fool? <laughs> that wouldn't be funny. It'd be crazy. But next, next the wife shows up. Sapphira shows up. And she doesn't know what's happened. She doesn't know that her husband's been caught. She doesn't know that he's dead. Remember, she's in on the lie. She's in on the lie with her husband, and, and she doesn't know anything that's happened. So, so let's read about what happens there. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Y'all, that's got to be a tense moment. Y'all know everybody around watching is like doing some kind of tell the truth. I don't know how you'd communicate that. Bretta probably knows how to say truth in sign language, but just be honest. It's got to be a tense moment. Don't lie. This is not going to end well for you. I've seen this movie. But ladies, wives, what is she supposed to do? What is she supposed to do? Is she supposed to be a quote-unquote good wife and submit to her husband and continue the lie that her husband wanted her to tell? Is that what she's supposed to do? If your husband does something wrong, are you supposed to follow him into that sin? No. Submission to your husband never, ever means following your husband into sin. You might follow your husband into a mistake. Like, babe, I think we should buy a lot of this uh, Bitcoin. That might be a mistake. Hey, honey, I think we ought to move to California. That might be a mistake. People leave in that place. You can follow your husband into a mistake, but we never, you never follow him into sin. Why do I say this? Because it seems that sometimes ladies, when they get married, relinquish responsibility and just go along with whatever their husband is doing. But there is a day coming, ladies, when you will stand before God on your own without your husband, like Sapphira here, and you will have to answer for yourself. You'll have to answer to God for your lifestyle, for your generosity, for your involvement or lack of involvement in church, for your salvation, for how you raised your kids, for how you discipled your kids. Your husband will not be able to speak for you. That day is coming. And guys, husbands, understand this. Not only is the same thing true for you that you will have to stand on your own two feet and give an account for how you spent your life, but your sin does not only affect you. The decisions you make affect your wife, affect your kids. The decisions change the culture of your home, the future that your kids can have, how your family thrives or falters. Your decisions, guys, affect a lot more people than you. So lead well. Let's continue. And she said, yes. Remember, Peter's asked her, did you sell the property for X amount? She said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately... 
she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who, all who heard these things. Just like that, she followed in the steps of her husband through the lie and to the grave. So now let me ask a few questions about this story. Why did Ananias and Sapphira do what they did? Why the lie? Why this whole plot? See, on the surface, it just seems like a lie, maybe even a small lie. But the lie is merely the tip of the iceberg. And the real issue is under the water, under the surface, and it's much deeper. Ask the question, why is it that they felt the need to lie in the first place? Why not just make a generous donation and move on? Why lie? Because they were not giving this money to the church. They were giving the money to themselves. Their generosity was but a means to get the love and praise of people. That's what they really wanted. That's what they really wanted. They wanted to be seen as Barnabas was seen. The guy who would go and sell his property and give all the money to the church. See, there were two things they wanted. They wanted money. They loved money, but they also wanted the praise of people. They wanted people to look at them and make a fuss about them and their generosity, just like they did Barnabas. So with the lie that they told, they were able to get both of those things. They were able to keep some of the money for themselves, and they were able to look generous and get the praise of men at the same time. Now, Barnabas was filled with the Spirit. They gave his money away to bless people. And Ananias and Sapphira were filled with the love of money. And so they lied about giving money away in order to receive blessing from people. Barnabas gave his money to bless people. They gave their money to use people. The biggest issue isn't the smoke on top. It's the lie. It's not the lie. It's the fire underneath. It's the bigger part of the iceberg. It is a heart filled with envy and jealousy and anger. You see, sometimes we try to deal with the smoke in our lives. But you can spray water on smoke all day long and it never puts out the fire. You can spray water on smoke and it doesn't do anything. You gotta go deeper. You gotta go to the source. You have to spray water on the fire. So what is it in your life, church? What is it that you are willing to lie for? What thing in your life do you want so badly that you're willing to lie for, you're willing to cheat for, you're willing to cross a line in order to get it? What is it in your life that you believe matters enough that would make you happy enough that if you got it, it would, it would satisfy you so much that you're willing to lie and cheat, manipulate, cross a line to get it? Once you know the answer to that question, you will see that the lying and the cheating, though those things are bad, they're just symptoms. But the real issue is deeper in your heart. The smoke just shows us that there is a fire somewhere else. You see, you are either filled with the Spirit or Satan has filled your heart with jealousy, the love of money, the love of praise, or something else. See, the only way to truly change, the only way to truly fill the void in your heart and your life is not to try and satisfy those worldly corrupt desires, but instead to tell Satan no and to be filled with the Spirit, which leads us to contentment, 
and joy and true fulfillment. Ananias and Sapphira lie to get what they want. They thought it would just cost them a little bit of the money they made off selling their land, but in reality, it cost them their life. And that is always the price of sin. Sin promises to satisfy you, but it only ever sucks the life out of you. Let me ask you another question. And this may be the question we kind of all really want to know the answer to. Why did God kill them? Like, that seems a little dramatic, right? Seems a little excessive. Like, we know that God doesn't just kill everyone who lies, or he doesn't even just kill everyone who wants the praise of people or who loves money. We know that because y'all are still alive. And I'm still alive. So why does he kill them? They are in a unique moment in church history. A unique moment where the presence, of, the presence and work of God are incredibly magnified. Like in a few verses, Peter's going to be walking down the road and everybody's going to be trying to come get him because they want to be healed. And if Peter's shadow touches them, they get healed. Like this is an intense moment in church history where the Spirit of God is intensely working. Thousands of people are being saved. God is very, very present here. And the closer you get to God, the seriousness of sin increases. When you stand in the light of the holiness of God, Every blemish is magnified. Some, some of you ladies have these in your home. Uh, have you ever, guys, have you ever seen these mirrors that women have where they do makeup in? Like this big, and they usually kind of have a light around it. But if you look at that thing, like there's a terrifying monster in there. Like I got one, I looked at it, like, whoa, who is that? That is not me. Because that thing like zooms in, you see every little pore and like hairs coming from places you didn't know hairs were supposed to come from. And it's just like, is that me? Can everybody else see this? And it, these mirrors, they just magnify you so you can get all beautiful and cover everything up, right? But that is exactly what being close to God does. When we are close to the holiness and glory of God, it magnifies every imperfection, every blemish in our life. But also, God is using this to teach the early church an important lesson. It's one of those, ain't gonna do it again moments. With all the healings that have been happening, he was teaching them that though everyone's not gonna be healed now, that the healings pointed to a day when everyone who put their faith in Christ would be totally restored. In the same way, though everyone who sins now doesn't drop and peel over dead, he is reminding them that there is a day coming when everyone will stand face to face with the consequences of their sin and the wages of sin is death and an eternal death in hell. See, sometimes we read a story like this and we think, man, that is so unfair. We read the story like this and our first reaction is, that seems excessive. That seems like a little too much. God, give them a break. Like, it wasn't that big a deal. But when, when we have that reaction, that is but a reminder to us that we should be less shocked that God killed these two sinners and more shocked that he lets us live. It is a reminder to us that we are just as broken 
that our brokenness has calloused us and muted our senses to the realities and depths and heinousness and evilness of sin. See, God is just as grieved at our sin, and our sin deserves just as much wrath and justice as Ananias and Sapphira does. Do not fool yourself into thinking that God is taking your sin more lightly than theirs. There must always be justice for sin. The only question is who's going to pay for it. God sent his son Jesus to bear the weight of your and I's sin on the cross, on his shoulders, and it cost him his life and separation from the Father. Jesus went through hell so that we didn't have to go through hell. See, God is just, and whether that judgment comes now or at the end of time, God is good and right to give it. It is teaching them, the church, a lesson. Remember that sin has a heavy price, and it must always be paid. Last question, what is God teaching us through this story? Like, why is this in the Bible? What does God want us to take away from a story like this? I want you to take four quick things away from this story. One, there are two types of people in the church, and it's hard to tell the difference. There are two types of people in this room right now, and it's hard to tell the difference. See, on the outside, Ananias and Sapphira were like Barnabas, and they were both active in church. They were both incredibly generous. But deep down, below the surface, we see that they were not the same. Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira were not the same. See, deep down, Ananias and Sapphira were in it for the love of money and for the praise of men. And there are those in the church that are great imitators. Because there are some people in this room right now that are great imitators. You know the language. You know what was supposed to happen. You've heard enough people talk and share their stories that you know how to talk and you know how to share a story, even if it hasn't really happened to you exactly that way. If we had the ability to look deeper, we would see that some people do not, do not or have never belonged to God. In the Old Testament, there's this story about uh, the city of Jericho. Maybe you remember it. <clears throat> and Israel is this, you know, kind of small nation, and Jericho is this fortress, and this mighty army, and God tells them to go march around it, you know, seven times, and, and they do, and, and the walls fall, and they take out Jericho, and they have victory. And then, as they're going to continue to take the promised land, God tells them, now I want you to go take out this, this people called AI. What's the name? AI. And so they go on this puny little people. It's like the peewee squad. You know, we just took out Jericho, this is no big deal. And so they go and they fight AI and they get their butts kicked. And they come back to camp and they're like, how did this happen? Like, what, what's, we just defeated Jericho and God was with us and then we go fight the Pee Wee squad and we get slaughtered? What's going on? God tells Joshua, the leader, to do some things. He tells them, split everyone up into their tribes. So Joshua splits everyone up into the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he says, split them up into their family units. And so they're, now they're all in their big family units. And then he says, split them into their immediate families. And they do that. And he says, go to Achan. And he goes to Achan. And he goes and he looks inside his tent. And buried and hidden in his tent was all this treasure 
and idols and things that Achan had stolen from Jericho. And God had told them, when you defeat this place, you don't take anything. You don't, you don't plunder. You're not taking anything. You don't take their riches. You don't take their money. You don't take their idols. You don't take anything. But Achan had some stuff hidden in his tent. So the consequences came for everyone later when they tried to take out AI. And the question is, what is hidden in your tent? What is hidden in your life? Are you Barnabas and you're filled with the Spirit? You have this genuine life change? Or are you more like Ananias and Sapphira? Like you can talk the talk. You know the words to say. You know how to play the game. You know how to, you know how to go to church. You know how to say the right things. You know how to dress up. But is it just a show? And if we could open up your heart, if we could dig down into your tent, well, into your life, what would we find? Would we find things hidden there that would show that you are actually more like Ananias and Sapphira who were just in it for themselves? Two, we cannot hide from God. The book of Hebrews tells us that we are laid bare before God to whom we must give an account. There is nothing that God cannot see. There is no thought or inclination of our heart that is hidden from his sight. Ananias and Sapphira knew this, but they got so consumed by the desire to have men praise them that they forgot that the only opinion that matters is not the opinion of men, but the opinion of God. And like them, we will stand before God to give an account Do not be deceived like so many who care so much about outward appearance. They never dealt with their hearts. They never dealt with what's on the inside. You see, guys, you can deceive me. You can trick me. You can say the right words and fool me. I cannot see into your heart. I just have to take your word for it. But your heart and mind and the inclinations of the deepest parts of your heart are but a screen before God, a TV screen, just showing everything. You hide nothing. You are laid bare before him. Cannot hide from God. So don't. Number three, fear is a part of worship. You read throughout this passage, you'll see the word fear mentioned a lot of times. It's everywhere in this passage. They drop dead, they're afraid. She drops dead. They're afraid. The church grows because the fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord. It's because when you understand the holiness of God, when you understand his magnitude, the glory, fear is a natural response. It's the reason that every time an angel shows up in the Bible, what does the angel say? You're not. Don't be afraid. I'm not here to kill you. An angel shows up and it's like, I'm going to die. Think about what it's like when the Lord shows up. When we come into the presence of such a holy God, it is like, coming into the presence of a holy God is like a butterfly trying to land on the surface of the sun. But maybe you would say to me, Brent, I thought that God was supposed to be like this grandfather in the sky, you know, like, He's my bubba in the sky. He's just like this good, good guy, and he just got good vibes and love and peace and warmth and hugs. 
And God, yes, is infinite in his love. That is true. But you can only know that love. You can only understand that grace and rescuing and that love when you know what that love has saved you from. Last night or two nights ago, we had a tornado come through here, right? Or at least it was one in the radar in the sky. I don't know if it ever touched down, but it was, you know, a little scary and um, storm happened. I was outside um, earlier in the day before the tornado came and doing some stuff and the wind kind of got all dark all of a sudden and, and winds kind of started picking up. I was like, oh, I need to go move my umbrella. And so I went and stood on top of the, the giant base filled with 500 pounds of sand and I'm grabbing the thing to crank the umbrella down when all of a sudden this wind came and like lifted it and me up and I thought I was like Mary Poppins going to the moon. I'm like, Jesus, take the wheel. I'm God. And trees are cracking. I'm like, kids, get inside. And I'm like fishing, trying to get this thing to go down. I'm doing it with Kate's like, you're doing it backward. I'm like, sorry. It was a hectic two minutes. And then the storm went away. But if you've ever been, uh, again, like, uh, I heard the story about these guys climbing up the Himalayas. And in the Himalayas, uh, these big windstorms can just come on all of a sudden. And they can, they can pick you up and move you 100 miles and kill you. And so imagine you're there, and, and the wind starts picking up, and you are about to die, when all of a sudden you see a little cave, a little cleft in the rock. And you run, and you get in that cave. And then the storm comes, and it blows through. And now you stand here, and, and, and you, you're like all the guys when the tornado came last night, when all the wives are going downstairs, honey, get down here, the tornado's coming. We're like, no, I want to see it. I want to look at it. I think it's coming. There it is. It's forming, babe. Come see this. And they're just like, you're an idiot. I know, but it's cool. We're in the cleft of the rock looking at the storm, and we just want to see the awesomeness of a storm that can come and just rip a house up. We just want to look at that. It's cool. In the same way, when we are hidden from the storm of God's wrath, when we are hidden from his holiness and by his grace, we can then stand in the cleft of the rock and look at it. And it's, a, it's scary. There's fear there, but it's a fear that's different because we're safe. We're safe. It's what the old hymn Amazing Grace reminds us of. Tis grace that taught my heart to Fear. It's grace that taught my heart to fear. See, we behold the might of a sovereign God who could strike us down in a moment and be good to do so. And yet we wonder in awe from the safety of his love that he chooses to protect us and not destroy us where we stand. See, biblical fear is awe mixed with intimacy. Four. Sin is a deadly, serious matter to God. Let, let's be honest. When many of us, when we read this story, we find it offensive. We don't understand a God who kills people, much less who kills people for something so seemingly small. But that's just it. What we think is small, what we think is not a big deal, only goes to show how broken and calloused we are. <laughs> that our senses are tamed and dulled to the realities of the world. And the question is not, why would God kill these people? The question is, why does God allow us to keep living? And the answer is simple. 
because his grace and love and patience and kindness. That his love knows no bounds. His love took him to a bloody cross whereby he willingly paid the price for our sin so that he would no longer have to be angry at us and strike us down. See, sin is a deadly, serious matter to God, so deadly that it took the life of God's only son. This story serves as a warning for us. Like the warning of a parent telling their children not to run by the pool or don't eat that cat poop. Not because God doesn't want good things for us, but because he knows that running by the pool will get you hurt. Eating cat poop will probably make you sick. We will one day stand in Ananias and Sapphira's shoes before God and ask to give an account for our lives. So the question that you need to answer right now is this. Where's the fire? You see the smoke, but where's the fire? What's below the surface? See the top of the iceberg, but what's below the water? What are the secrets you want no one to know about? Are you Barnabas or Ananias and Sapphira? Are you filled with the Spirit, or has Satan filled your heart with envy and lust? Are you faking it? Are you good at talking the talk? Are you good at putting on a show? Do you just come to church? Because that's what you're supposed to do. Come to church. Here's the great irony. If you own your sin, if Ananias and Sapphira would have just owned up to their sin, you own it. God will release you from it. But if you hide it, you'll be held accountable for it. If you own it, if you confess it, if you own up to it, God will release you from it through the blood of his son. But if you hide it, pretend it's not there, excuse it, push it away, then you will be held to account. See, own your sin today, own your failures today because you won't be met by an angry God who wants to vengefully wave his finger at you and smite you. If you own your sin today, you will be met with the love and patience and forgiveness of a God who already knows what's in your heart. He knows it. You're not hiding from him. He knows it. And yet, he still wants you so much that he sent his son to pay the price of your sin. Church, let's not let Satan ever destroy us from within. Let's be the people who take sin seriously to bring it to the Lord, let him deal with it. Let him hide us in the cleft of the rock so that we might stand in awe and wonder at who he is from the safety of his loving arms. Let's pray. Father, this morning, there are people in this room who have been faking it. There are people in this room who are more like Ananias and Sapphira there are people in this room who, if you, if, you, if you relented from your general mercy, would strike them down in an instant. Father, most of us in this room, a lot of us in this room, are also those people. Not deserving of your love, not deserving of your grace, but we are people who time and time again uh, are like Ananias and Sapphira, and we, we deceive and we want things we shouldn't want. We cross lines, we cheat, we lie. We want to get things that we think will make us happy. The difference is we've owned it. 
God, by your grace, you've moved our hearts to, to own our sin. And you have dealt graciously with us, forgiving us of it and making us your children. But God, those in this room today who have made excuses, who have justified, who have pushed aside and say, I will deal with those issues later. Or for those in this room that are too prideful to admit, you know what, maybe, maybe I've actually never actually dealt with these issues and, and maybe I don't belong to God and, and, and maybe I've just been put on the show because I'm too proud to admit that maybe I need to come to Christ and be saved. That's you this morning. Man, do not be like Ananias and Sapphira. Do not think you can play games with God and win in the end. It does not end well for you. But what we know is that if you come and own it, that God will not just forgive you. He will turn you into a Barnabas. He will turn you into the kind of person who is no longer controlled and enslaved by the worldly desires but a person who is set free from them and who can make a difference in this world and do it while being content, full of joy and loving life. You're here this morning and you don't know Jesus. When we sing this song, just stop what you're doing. Stop playing games with God and come up here. Let me talk with you through how you can come to Christ. You ain't gotta be a superhero. You ain't gotta do nothing special. Just come and own your sin and ask him to forgive you. Let me help you with that. If you're here this morning and you want to pray about anything going on in your life, I'm here for you. Don't play games. Don't play games with God. I've seen the movie. It doesn't end well. Own it. It's hard. Taking that first step is hard. But if you own it, your life will never be the same. When you look back, it'll be the most important moment in your, in your entire life. God, give us the strength to deal with you as we need to. Christ, let me pray all people said, stand and sing, church.